Been watching our new neighbors, not in a creepy way. I, I just thought of this. Again, every time I explain to somebody, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta like explain deeper. So my home office is the front windows of the house, so I can, I watch the neighborhood, and it, it's really creepy. Hopefully, they can't see me, because <laughs> I'm, I'm working, but I'm, I'm looking, and, I, and I've been watching our, our brand new next door neighbors um, setting up house. Uh, they moved from Hood River. And apparently they downsized, kind of like what Diane did when we moved up here. We got rid of just tons of stuff and kind of started over almost, re-setting up house all over again. Um, and I've been watching, and I know the situation with furniture and backlog and everything, and, and they're, for the past month, they get about one piece of furniture every four days, I think. I mean, literally, a lamp rolls in off the truck, and their truck goes goodbye. And then two days later, it'll come, and there'll be a nightstand that goes with the lamp. Um, I've been told that they won't have any furniture in their living room till September. Now, I know this is a big deal from experience, right? From a new house to a house that feels like home, um, the details matter. When we first moved up here, um, my wife loves me. And so she, I know this, it meant a lot to her, but it meant... I know it meant more to me, and, and this is how much she loves me. In our house, we have a lot of beach stuff. You know, it's kind of, that's our, the style maybe of our house, kind of an, a beach theme. Um, and there's a picture in, in the front room of, of the Ocean Beach Pier where, you know, a decade plus, we, we intimately involved with the Ocean Beach Pier, the beach there, surfed there for a decade, and, 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 I, and I see the picture, and it's in our home, and it's a piece of furniture, and, I, and it just makes me feel good, right? And, and the way she set up the house, I, I just feel at home the way she furnishes, right? Does that make sense? I, I'm not, and this, this, this makes sense to you. I know this. Um, and in addition to that, you know, when you're moving into a new home, you're not only bringing in your style, you know, so the people, when you walk into your house, they kind of know something about you. Um, I know I've, locked, I've walked into some people's houses, and the first thing I see is Joshua, chapter 24. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that, that screams something to me about that household. That's an important piece of furniture, and I've seen it in a lot of houses. And, and it, it is. It, it's absolutely crucial. It just, it, it, it's a message. That anybody that comes into this house, y'all understand who this house stands for, right? Whose house this truly is. And again, kind of on a bigger scale, you know, the details matter, but on a bigger scale, each room, as you move into a new house, each room has a function, right? You don't want the stove in the bedroom. You don't want it in the bathroom, definitely, and you don't want your mattress in the kitchen. As I wrote that, we'll circle back around because I kept thinking, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> but I don't see it very often, mattresses in kitchens, right? But if you all can remember that far back and getting married, those of you who are married, um, setting up house wasn't just about the furniture, right? Setting up house was about creating patterns of behavior, right, that, that will guide both you and your spouse how you relate and will guide how you relate to other people, right? Think in-laws, <laughs> think neighbors, right? You and your spouse, you kind of, not in a real formal manner, but you really do, you kind of set up house. This is the way we will do, this is the way we will treat certain people, and this is the way we'll treat God. You, you set up patterns as to how you relate to God when you first set up house, right? You, you, just, you just go through this. Um, and so in addition 
to all that, um, these patterns, you're going to follow them with the goal that your kids are going to follow the patterns. You're going to teach your kids to follow these same patterns in their lives. And it, it's called setting up house. In our final week of our series, just kind of hold on to that for just a second. Um, here's the, the trailer for the message. Um, final week of the series, Promised Land. Essentially, we've been looking at the book of Exodus and, and related passages from other books. Um, but this morning, I want to start um, at the close of the Exodus. And when I say that, I don't mean at the close of the book called Exodus, but I want to start at the close of the event that's called the Exodus. And that actually goes from Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? The whole Exodus experience covers all four of those books. Um, we got one book that's got the name, but four books cover the event. And at the end of those five books, the very next book you're going to run into is called the book of Joshua. This is Moses' right-hand man. Um, and in that book, in the first five, in the first four books, you know, Exodus through Deuteronomy, they're wandering, and then in the book of Joshua, they, take, they finally arrive at the promised land, and they take the land. That's, that's the story of the book of Joshua. Um, and and you, you guys might want to run home with this one, tell your kids this amazing joke that pastor told you, um, what biblical character other than Adam and Eve have no parents? Joshua, son of none, right? So just, you know, you need that. So anyway, at the close of his mission, at the close of his life, at the close of his book, um, kind of like Moses did, identically like Moses did, he gathers all the leaders of the Israelites, gathers them all, sits them all down, and after recounting all the promises that God had made and God had fulfilled, again, exactly like Moses had done, like his, his mentor, he's doing the exact same thing. He sits them all down and he makes a statement about setting up house. And at first he's speaking for the Lord. This is, this is God speaking. This is in Joshua chapter 24, verses 13 and 14. So I gave you a land, this is God speaking, so I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And this is where Joshua now, he's speaking to the people. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now absolutely crucial absolutely central to every ancient home, there was usually a shrine, right? And in this shrine, there were, were graven images. Graven simply means sculpted, molded by hand. Graven images, usually a statue, a little statuette, a little figurine, whatever. And, and, and there would be candles and votive, you know. And it, it was the shrine to the family god or the family gods, right? And they would feed them, right? In the morning, they would they, fruit and vegetables and whatever, and then in the evening, they'd haul it out to the trash. The next morning, put out fresh. Gods would somehow eat the essence of it. I, I don't know. I don't know how that, that worked, but they would feed it. They would pray to it. They would sacrifice to it, and they would sacrifice for it. They would give up anything for their family's deities, And by various means, divination and casting of lots and all the different ways, these family deities directed the family, told them what to do, where to go, when to do it. Right? It was the decision maker. This little figurine was the decision maker for the family. And this was a huge deal. 
right? Lots of Bible drama devoted to these crazy little figurines, right? Think, think uh, a Rachel stealing from the family idols in Genesis chapter 31 and Laban chasing after them, right? Think King David's daughter using Saul's like figurine. I don't know what it was, but he stuck it in David's bed so it looked like David was sleeping there and David could get away and like just all sorts of, I mean, think of the two nations, the northern nation of Israel and the southern nation of Judah. Because of these idols, these little figurines, right? The northern nation gets carried away. We never see them again. And Judah gets sent off into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And here's the crazy thing. Here's the good thing. When they came back from that one, they never worshiped those crazy little idols again. It's like they finally learned their lesson, but that's, that's not where we're going, right? Now, notice this. Two, two, two people, um, the gods of their ancestors and the gods of Egypt. These are the two that he mentioned. Now, here's, here's the interesting part. Watch in the very next verse. It says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves whom this day whom you will serve and he gives them now two choices. It's not the same two choices that he just gave them. Watch this. You, you can either serve the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, and normally you would think, or the gods of Egypt, because that's what he just now said. But he goes somewhere else. He goes very, very sarcastic, right? This is ancient biblical sarcasm, right? Or the gods of the Amorites, right, in whose land you are now living, Right? Everybody in the room knows that in chapter 10 of Joshua, the Amorites have already been destroyed, and they're sitting there on their land right now. So this is just like, he's just being mean, I, I think. He's just, he's just rubbing it in, you know, at this point. But the key to remember here, of the two gods, right, the gods of Egypt and, the, and, the, and these ancient gods that they're, you know, the father uh, of Abraham, um, you know, uh, his, his family and clan way back in the land of Ur that they had worshipped, Right? They had made it all the way through these times. Funny thing, in Egypt, the people, the Israelites were kind of kept away from the Egyptians. So we understand that they kept these little family figurines that entire time. Yeah, we find out that, I'm guessing the teenagers, right? They were like, oh, let's try something new. You know, and then you got the golden calf thing going on. But I think in the hearts of the people, the hearts of the people is these ancient family figurines that they had been keeping the whole time. Moses and Joshua knew about these things, and they knew how dangerous they would be. And so you'll notice here he talks about, again, the gods of your ancestors that you serve beyond the Euphrates or, or the Amorites. Right? The dangerous one were these little figurines. In Jewish tradition, this isn't in your Bible, uh, but there's this idea that Abraham saw what his clan, how they worshiped these false idols, and, it, and he detested it. And, and God, therefore, kind of spoke into that opinion of Abraham, and Abraham's like, yeah, get me out of this crazy place. My, my folks are doing crazy stuff. Um, but that's all tradition. That's not, that's not in your Bible. Um, so I'm going to keep reading. Verse 16, it says this, 15, continue. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now understand something. This statement wasn't made from out of the blue. Lots of history behind this statement, like 40 years of history behind the statement. Literally a lifetime of history is sitting behind this statement right here. You see, 40 years earlier, God had shown them how best to set up house, right? When he gave this incredibly, incredibly detailed, rich instructions for the tabernacle. And you say, well, Pastor Jerry, right? I thought you were talking about setting up house. Now you're talking about setting up church. As we're going to find out this morning... As we're going to see that setting up the tabernacle creates a pattern for setting up our house. And again, when we say house, and when we think biblically speaking, we don't just talk about the building. We talk about, you know, the phrase, the house of David, right? The house of Saul. We're talking about their whole life, their culture, their behaviors, their everything. The house of. 
So in this chapter in, in, in Exodus, God is saying, I'm, I'm setting up house for you all. And your own home should reflect this house. Right? So we're, we're setting up house in the book of, in the book of Exodus. Um, and before jumping into the tabernacle, I, I want to say a word about the tent of meeting. There's a tent of meeting and there's the tabernacle. In the Bible, it's described differently. They're never really put together. A lot of commentators, they kind of put them together. Again, opinions vary on this. One is that the, the tent of meeting, if you look real closely in chapter 33, in fact, I'll show you this right now in verse 33, chapter verse 7, it says this. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the tent, the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord, and we saw this in the video, would go out to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Now, as we begin, to, we're going to look at the tabernacle today, and we find out the tabernacle is not at the outside of the camp. It's dead center in the middle of the camp, right? And, and, and again, commentators, Bible scholars, they kind of, they're all over the place on this one. One, that, that, that what you just saw in there, that tent of meeting that was outside, that was a precursor to the tabernacle. The instructions for the tabernacle came a little bit later while they were encamped there in the wilderness, um, and and one, one writer says that the tent of meeting was kind of used just when they weren't stopping for a very long time, right? To set up the tabernacle required all day. It was usually done in a day. And then to tear it down required a day. But if they were stopping and moving on again right away, tent of meeting, don't know. Bottom line, essentially the same purpose. The tent of meeting and the tabernacle, whether they are the same thing or not. Uh, they're both places where God would meet his people. Right? Differences, though, that you'll see in Scripture. In the tent of meeting, the cloud's only there when Moses is there, right? And it's outside the camp. But when you go to the tabernacle, the, the cloud and the flame are there all the time, and it's in the middle of camp, except when they travel, and then, the, then literally God would move from the heart or the middle of the camp out into the front, and he would lead the way. It's pretty crazy. Very cool. So back to the tabernacle, right? You got the difference in the tent of meeting and the tabernacle. Could have been two different things, Existing side by side, and again, go home, do some homework. Back to the tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 25, after their deliverance from Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone, from anyone whose heart prompts them to give. Now understand they're loaded down with gold and silver and all sorts of material wealth from the Egyptians, right? In the Bible we know that after the death of the firstborn, the Egyptians are like, get out of here, right? We'll give you our car, we'll give you the Cadillac, just, just get out of here. We don't want you anywhere near us anymore. Just, just leave. Verses 3 through 5. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, scarlet yarn, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, casio wood. And as we read on, we quickly discover that these are basically all the stuff needed to build the tabernacle and to equip the priesthood. Right? Kind of keep that in your mind. And as you read through the passages, Scripture kind of bounces back and forth between the tabernacle, equipping the tabernacle, and setting up the priest. So understand there's two different things going on, but they're both essentially vitally important. Two separate things, the tabernacle and the priests. And these offerings are going to set up both. I'm going to keep reading verse 6, 7. Olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. And onyx stones and the other gems to be mounted on the ephod in the breast piece, the uniform of the priests. Again, that's another sermon, and it's a whole involved deal. I'm going to keep reading verses 8 and 9. Then have them make me a sanctuary. 
Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So a sanctuary to dwell in, a sanctuary to dwell amongst you in. Two separate things. We're going to come back to that in just a little bit. But here's the key. You had to follow the pattern set by God because it was not a pattern set by man. This was a pattern set exclusively by God, and you had to follow it in order to dwell amongst you. In order to be here amongst you, you've got to set up your lives and your houses as I direct. And he does. He directs them like he tells them exactly where to put their house in relation to where he, in his holiness, puts his house. Right? Because you don't want your house too close to the holy house. Your house is going to burn. Right? There's, there's got to be something. And then, and then in these books and these passages, we find out how we keep that distance between this holy God's, his house, and our house. And again, I'm going to be talking about the tabernacle, and I get it, to be honest, of all the topics that I could have chosen to close out a message on the Exodus to choose the tabernacle. I mean, we could have t- Ten Commandments, right? Everyone knows that'd be a good one. I could have taken a half a dozen different jaw-dropping miracles that God performed in the travelings of the Exodus. Why the tabernacle? Why, why, Pastor Jerry, why the tabernacle? If you see up there on the screen above me, um, on your screen on your TV, um, the tabernacle takes up a huge amount of biblical space. Over 50 chapters are devoted to the tabernacle. Right? 13 chapters. I mean, you see it right there. 18 chapters in Leviticus, 13 in Numbers, three of them in Deuteronomy, central to eight of the chapters in Hebrew. And if you really look at the book of the Hebrew, the entire book is kind of the backdrop behind the entire letter to the, he- the Hebrews in the New Testament was the tabernacle and the high priest. Right? That, that, that was behind everything in that book. So again, by sheer volume... Right? The Bible writers seem to think that understanding the nitty-gritty details of this tabernacle is incredibly important. I mean, it's a huge, huge deal. And without a thorough understanding of not only how the tabernacle was built, but how it functions, if we don't have that information, without that information, we would not be able to understand the book of Leviticus or the book of Hebrews. It wouldn't make any sense. It would be gibberish. There could be no sacrifices offered. The priesthood couldn't function. In fact, we find out in history, 70 years about 35-ish years after the death of Christ, the temple gets destroyed, and guess what ceases to exist? Sacrifices and the priesthood, right? They needed the tabernacle to exist. That, that, that was their function. So here's where we stand today. Nearly everybody recognizes the importance of the tabernacle, right? We all, we all recognize, wow, super, super, super important. Um, but we don't agree on its interpretation, right? At one extreme, we have uh, this idea that it's an Old Testament historical relic, right? It, it, it belongs in history. It has really nothing to do in the New Testament era. And then at the other extreme, kind of like the book of Revelation, um, some folks read into the tabernacle and decided that all the mysteries of the universe are wrapped up in the tabernacle. And if we could just understand the rich symbolism and, and all of the stuff behind the tabernacle, all of our problems, all of our answers, right, could be solved. You know, in that tabernacle teaching lies all the answers to everything. And it is. It's really super easy to arrive at that point, right? You look at the explanation, the the description of it, and it's incredibly symbolic. I mean, everything about it, right? All the parts create a harmonious whole, right? And and all of them are exact 
numerical relation, right? They, they, they like fit in like those little Russian dolls, right? They just, they just, everything just fits inside of everything. Um, the numbers, three, four, and 10, predominate everywhere. Pro proportionate squares and rectangles. The values of the metals, right? They start at bronze, go to silver, and then arrive at gold as you get closer to the presence of God, the Holy of Holies. And even the cloth of the tent starts, I think, like at goat hair, and it ends up at fine linen. Everything, as you draw closer to God, becomes finer and finer. And so you got all this incredible, rich, rich imagery. And, 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 and facing east, you know, biblically speaking, you know, for a traveler, travelers want to move in a westward direction. To move in an eastward direction, it's usually not good, right? They left Eden moving in an eastward direction. Lot chose his his lot moving eastward, right? So you, biblically speaking, you want to move west. Go west, young man. Always go west. So, and, and then there's a lot more. This is just a sampling of, of all the symbolism. And so it's easy to see how people arrive at some pretty, pretty creative, I was going to say crazy, creative interpretations. This is a guy named Philo of Alexandria. He was kind of out there, admittedly, right? His interpretation was the tent is the spiritual world and the court Yard is the material world. The four colors are earth, air, fire, and water. I, I, Pokemon, I don't know where that came from. Um, the lamp with the seven lights or seven planets, apparently several came into being since I did not know this. You learn so much reading the Bible. The 12 loaves of bread are the 12 signs of the zodiac and the 12 months of the year. So that's what he thought. Right? And then one of the greatest early church thinkers, a guy named Origen, he thought kind of along the same lines, but he arrived at a different place. He thought the tabernacle represented the mysteries of Christ and his church. Right? Gold represents faith, silver represents the preached word, and bronze, patience. Patience, why did they pick that one? Now, does all this mean that the immense amount of biblical material dealing with the tabernacle, Right, it's just not accessible to us today. Is there, is there any practical application for the tabernacle for us today? Again, people who arrive at, nah, it's just, right. And I think that's wrong. I think that's grossly wrong. Again, the sheer volume dealing with the tabernacle testifies to its importance. But on top of that, the New Testament letter to the Hebrews is entirely devoted to symbolically applying the tabernacle and the priesthood to Jesus Christ. So this is something that we need to participate in, but we need to be careful. Because, again, the interpretations and symbolism can get out there. <laughs> Truly, you can arrive at some pretty amazing places. Bottom line, from Genesis to Revelation, and this is the importance of the tabernacle, God desires to dwell in the midst of his people. That's the Bible story. We rejected, we reject, we reject, and he just keeps trying, trying to get into our hearts. You know, he never, ever stops. First in the garden, then the tabernacle, then the temple. And then in the New Testament Gospels, right, God dwells literally with us. He tabernacles, that's the word used in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And now in the church age, God dwells in you, the church. And when I say the church, I mean you individually, not this building, right? Again, when you go home, he doesn't lock the door, put up his feet, and watch the ball game on the big screen. This isn't his house. It's where he comes to meet us. Again, the languages that we use, people, kids, they, they get some pretty... Anyway. The importance of the tabernacle is that it provides us with the very first biblical revelation of who God is and how we as human beings are going to relate to this God. The very first description. That, 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 that's why I think that we need to really kind of dig into it just a little bit 
Again, the very first representation, first description of how in the world are we going to approach a holy God? It's all laid out, just all laid out here in the teaching. So my goal is to share just a couple aspects of the tabernacle, widely accepted as having relevance, application for today. And I want to start with the original instructions. Verses 8 and 9 says, Then have them make me a sanctuary, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. First of all, a sanctuary is a, a place where holiness is, right? A place where the holiness of God is. A place where the holiness of God would come and settle amongst his people. Again, in the church, we say, you know, that this is the Lord's house, but the reality is this is simply where God comes to meet with us. And then the other term, a dwelling, I will dwell amongst them. Thought throughout the Bible, the tabernacle, you kind of get this idea. Um, it was a place where holiness is, right? Separated by the camp, from the camp by a 150-foot by 70-foot linen fence over seven feet tall to make certain that nobody accidentally wanders onto holy ground unprepared because they would be dead. So despite all this, I want to show you something really truly beautiful about the dwelling that God uses. It's a word first recorded in chapter 26, verse 7, and it's repeated quite a bit afterwards. And it's describing the covering of the holy place, the place, the holy place and, and the holy of holies. And then there's the court. I'll show you a picture there at the very end. Some of this will make a little bit more sense. In Exodus chapter 26, verse 7, it says, Make curtains of goat hair for the tent. And there's the crazy thing about that word, the term tabernacle, right? It gives us this, this entire enterprise, a lofty and worthy sense of dignity and uniqueness. But the fact remains that the word for God's tent is the exact same word used for the common tent that the people used. One writer says this, the tabernacle is the tent that God used when God went camping. I right? love, that, love that phrase. So if God's people are camping in tents, God would come alongside them and their circumstances and he would pitch his tent right next to theirs. And once again, this is a huge deal, right? For a long time, they had been at Mount Sinai, and the, the presence of God was unmistakable, right? You could not miss it. They got used to it. And then they got this idea, well, if we leave Mount Sinai, you know, you're telling us to pack up and leave, well, is he going to go with us? Right? So in the, in the minds of the Israelites, if we pack up and leave, we're going to break this link that we've established at Mount Sinai. Man, we got a bond, Right? Us and God, we're, we're, we're right here, but if we leave, so bam, the tabernacle, permanent extension of the bond forged at Mount Sinai. Essentially, the tabernacle represents Yahweh's permanent address amongst the Israelites, right? You can go to this address and find God. You probably shouldn't. You need to take a guide with you, the priest, but you know exactly where God lives, right? He would camp in his tent in their midst, and they would camp all around his tent. And this information can be found in the book of Numbers. Let me show you this kind of a drawing. This is what the camp looked like. Uh, the tabernacle is right there in the very center. Twelve tribes. You'll count 13 if you count Levi. You kind of got to do the math. They started with 12. They lost Joseph, right, down to 11. But Joseph's two sons get inserted in, so now we're back up to 13. But then at the golden calf, the Levi's lose their... Not their tribehood, but they don't end up as one of the 12 tribes, so now you're, you're back to 13. So just, you kind of got to follow the math closely here. But if you look at this picture, you've got the 12 tribes, and they're all surrounding God. It's, it's like God said, I'm going to be in your midst, literally. 
And a lot of commentators have noticed this. The three, the three uh, yellow families, they're the clans of the Levites. They surround the tabernacle, kind of a barrier almost between God and the people, the priests are kind of created. And then if you look very closely across the top, there's Levi, Moses, Aaron. They're all Levites. Um, and his two, Aaron's two sons, obviously, they're Levites. Forms a cross. It's just interesting. Commentators have noticed that. I'm not going to go any further with that. There you go. So, before moving on to something that we really shouldn't miss as we read about the tabernacle, and then one last thing that is fairly easy to miss as we look at the tabernacle. Um, but before that, one final note about the tabernacle in general, as seen in the original instructions, right? It says this, the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. God calls, but we have to respond, right? To be blessed the way he desires to bless us, we have to respond. Now, don't get me wrong, God blesses, like, that's his business. He just blesses, just willy-nilly, he blesses. But there are certain blessings that he wants to give through obedience. He wants to give to his people that can only come through obedience, right? And again, the Israelites could have said, no, man, we've suffered. We deserve all this gold and jewelry and all this stuff that they gave us. This is payment for 400 years, God. But they didn't. They responded well. So God desired to dwell in the midst of his people, but his people have to respond appropriately. Three things were needed very quickly. Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering from me from everyone whose hearts prompts them, whose heart prompts them. So God's planned blessings depends on willing hearts. First of all, again, that's a whole message all by itself, so I'll just keep moving. The second thing, these are the offerings you are to receive from them. And the list goes on, and it continues through verse 6 and 7. The second requirement you'll notice is sacrificial giving. Right? If you want to see the blessings of God in your life, they are going to require a willing heart, and they're going to require, more than likely, some sacrifice on your part. And I know we don't like that part. It's like, ugh. God's got a thousand cattle on hill. What's he need my earrings for? He needs your heart, and your heart loves those earrings. Anyway, living our lives as, as, as living sacrifices, right? And then finally, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly, right? You got to be obedient. You got to have a willing heart, be willing to give sacrificially, and you got to follow instructions, right? You got to be obedient. Now, something that we tend to miss, but we shouldn't. As the book of Hebrews makes it abundantly clear, despite all this information that I've given you over from over 50 books of the Bible, 50 chapters of the Bible, um, all this activity, the tabernacle's not real. It's not the real thing. That's a loud whisper. Look, listen to this. This is in Hebrews chapter, verse, chapter 9, verse 9. It's, it's just an illustration right, for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered there at the tabernacle in the book of Exodus offered, they weren't able to clear the consciousness of the worshiper, right? They, they were a temporary band-aid, right? Stop crying. You're not bleeding anymore. I didn't say in blood anyway, but here's your band-aid. They are only matters of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying to the time of the new order, and here's the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say is not part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood of goats and calves, 
but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. And again, from a previous chapter in Hebrews chapter 8, it says this, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow, a shadow. One commentator writes this, listen to this, this, this rocked me. In order to create a shadow, <clears throat> there must be a real object and there must be light. The image which is cast is a shape of reality, but it lacks one dimension, that of depth, and is devoid of all color. It has no substance of itself, but requires the real thing to be in existence. In heaven there is the sanctuary, and the tabernacle which was on earth was a shadow, albeit a pale shadow, of the heavenly. And here, again, in a form very easily understood by everybody, is pictured how to approach God, right? How to approach God and have fellowship with him when you're not holy and he is holy. The reality of which is found, as this writer says, it's not found in the tabernacle made with human hands, but it's found in Jesus Christ. And finally, something that's easy to miss but absolutely crucial in our understanding our role as followers of Jesus Christ in the church today. In this next, I've, I've, I've in words, these are the, the furniture of the tabernacle. And what I want you to do, I want you to imagine in Scripture, every description of any of these items, everything always starts, again, Exodus, whatever book you're looking in, everything starts at the Ark of the Covenant. And it moves in an outward direction. It goes to the curtain. It goes to the altar of incense, the bread, the lamp, the, 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 the basin, um, and, and the big bronze altar, right? Everything is, is directionally from God to us, graciously providing everything that's needed, God coming to us. One direction. Every, every one of the descriptions, when you look in God's Word, in all the places I showed you, you'll see the direction of Scripture is God moving toward us. But as the scripture moves to the priesthood, and, you, and again, as you read through these scriptures that I've shown you, the scripture bounces back and forth. One minute you're in the tabernacle, and the next minute you're, you're dressed up like a priest. Um, as, as the scripture moves to the priesthood, the direction changes, right? And it moves inward from us towards God. And here's where we find our application and our relevance for the tabernacle today. I want to show you a picture here, right? It, it's... Not graphic at all, but as you see in the bottom right, there is a celebrant there, and he's standing there with his, because only he's were allowed at this point inside that tent, and he's got his sacrifice, right? But this is as far as that person was allowed to go. The priest then had to intercede on behalf of the celebrant, right? The priest who, who had been properly prepared for this role, right? They'd cleansed themselves, and they're now in a position to figuratively... Not literally, because the celebrant had, he could not move any way more forward, right? The priest would figuratively usher the celebrant into the very heart of God, and that celebrant knew, right, my petitions have been heard. I've been forgiven. The priests have done what they do, and I don't understand what they do, but I know, I know I'm now forgiven, but in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is shown to be the perfect final high priest. And by way of the blood of that perfect sacrifice, we're ushered directly into the Holy of Holies, as it were, into the very presence of God. And our call is to arrange our lives, our house, 
right? In such a way as that we usher folks into the presence of God. And in order to do that, we need to understand what's going on up here. Each one of these things, they're very significant. This is your homework. Like a home and, and maybe some time today spent in the tabernacle. What are, the, what are each, each piece of the furniture? As you progress toward God, you're, you're confronted with information about his holiness and about your unholiness. And at each point along the way, as you move toward that holy and holiness, the holy of holies, things are fixed, right? The way is made. Our call is to arrange our lives, our house, in a way that we usher people into the presence of God. We are the priesthood of believers. Bow your heads. Father, thank you so much for this passage, for the tabernacle, the teachings. Father, it's a lot of information, but it all deals directly with your son, not ancient history. And Father, it shows us something, shows us so much about your holiness and our unholiness, and yet your desire to bridge that gap, and you provided the way. And so, Father, we praise you. That's why we're here this morning, to worship you and, and live out that promise so that people who haven't tasted and seen can taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, thank you for all this. In your son's name I pray. Amen.